0: And welcome to Season 2 of Power Talk. Power Talks are sure, powerful interviews from leading youth finance experts spreading new ideas and sharing best practice. For more information on the work our charity Power The Fight does and to find out how you can help empower communities to end youth violence, please visit www.powerthefight.org.uk. On today's episode, we have retired police officers and authors John Sutherland and Leroy Logan. We discuss the police perspective in regards to youth violence and knife crime. Guys, welcome to Power Talk. It is really good to have both of you here, people who I respect and I've known for a while. Would you just like to introduce yourself and tell us about who you are and what you do? All right, I'll I'll be age before beauty. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Um, (laughs) uh, Leroy Logan,
1: um, retired Met Police Officer, did 30 years from 1983 to 2013. And I can't believe it's been six years already. I've, uh, local guy from Islington, thought I was gonna go down the road of science, but ended up in the police. But that helped me to navigate through the challenges. And uh, I suppose one of the main things was being involved in the Black Police Association, being a founder member, and I suppose the input in the McPherson inquiry and uh, everything that came out of that. So yeah, that's roughly who I am. Still involved in the struggle for
2: equality and justice. Amazing. John Sutherland. I'm husband to one, dad to three, Uh, live in Brixton and I was uh, a Met Officer for over 25 years. Uh, Retired last February and uh, my last operational job
0: was as the Borough Commander for Southwark. Amazing. And let's not forget, the book that you've put out recently. Well, not even, that oh, was about a year ago there was it? Two years ago. Two years ago, do you yeah. want to just tell us what that's about and?
2: Yeah, I wrote a book called Blue, a memoir. Uh, and I wrote it while I was still serving. Um, I had some kind of sense that, I don't know, I, I had a, a, a duty almost to, to tell the world beyond policing about the world that policing reveals. Um, because as police officers you I talk often about the painful privilege of policing is that you you venture repeatedly into the hurting places and and so I wanted to tell some of those stories um, but but also I, I wanted to tell a personal story the, the reason i I left the met earlier than planned was because I got sick and uh, and so the book also
0: tells the story of my breakdown and and of my recovery it's an amazing story um thank you i'm excited just to have you guys here one of the things that power the fight what we like to do is collaborate bring different voices to the table and i think we can't really talk about youth violence or knife crime without having a conversation about the police and their involvement what they do what they bring to the table and that's what i just want us to do really let's just try and get your opinions about what's going on so Various stats will say that youth violence is going up. Um, Knife crime is going up. The community feeling is something which is, some people would say is at an all time low around how the police may engage with the issue. I'd love to just get your view on it. It'd be interesting just to take us back a little bit. Is this a new phenomenon? What are some of the reasons why we're in this, this place? Police responses, what do we think? Um, what can we do? It'd be just great just to hear your opinions on, on those things.
1: Um, well, knife crime is as old as crime itself, really, you know. Um, it has been a weapon of choice for many centuries. Um, obviously, guns came in um, through time. But um, I, I remember monitoring knife crime as far back as the late 90s because um, <clears throat> through my, my Black Police Association work we were doing a lot of um, Black History Month events and we'd have a sort of um, outreach bus going to different boroughs north and south of London and as a result of that we started to pick up quite wor- worryingly this propensity to use knives and more than just the places you would expect it to be. So was, this was outside my sort of primary role because um, at that time I was um, in Westminster um, and I was thinking, you know, what, what's going on here? So as a result of that, we um, developed a youth leadership programme called Voyage, Voyage Youth and that's pitched at Year 9 students um, for them to know their rights and responsibilities. So it's building relationships with the police as well as them knowing um, how to pick up negative peer pressure, how to be a positive peer role model, and more importantly, to understand how to work with organisations, the police, etc. Now that's been running since 2001 and it's still going eighteen years later. So we have had this sort of convolution of knife crime and how it's you know has been w it's been worrying recently.
0: First of all, it's not a new
1: It's so. nothing new. But the the, the, the two things because we I think the worst um, knife crime was in two thousand eight. Twenty-nine teenagers, etc. And it was terrible. And there was a response. And one of the main responses was we had safer neighborhood teams then. So they were able to connect with communities and they would do it on a regular basis. So there was that capacity um, to have intervention and prevention programs. And, you know, even the the borough command units, the the borough commander superintendents would have even some seed money to help organisations, grass organisations say, "Listen, you're doing some great stuff. Let's encourage you. Let's try." And that again, fostered relationship. Here we are now. Neighbour teams have been decimated. They're a third of what they were in terms of numbers. What's that? I
0: mean, look, we hear what, different stats. But what are the stats of the? We hear about police cuts, but what? What roughly? Well, how in, the, many in the Met, they're under thirty
1: thousand for the first time in fifteen years. They're less than seven hundred detectives, 700 detectives down, and then they've got increasing workload, and of course, you know, they, they're they really stretched. So the, the numbers are worrying, and it, all right, I know money's coming in, but your safer neighbor teams, they used to be ring-fenced. You used to have one con- sergeant, two constables, and three PCSOs, police, community, support officers, and they would be ring-fenced to that ward, and they would be connecting with the ward, community action teams, meetings, etc. And they were like an interface regularly, picking up intelligence and some, some proactive uh, um, work. But the key things, they were there. Now, they're not there. And I think that's a massive yeah. b- blind
2: spot for the man. And so you're asking what's different? Yes. So yeah. I, I agree with Leroy. Violence itself is as old as Cain and Abel. Yeah. Um, um, but there are some things that have been different and distinct over the course of the last 10 and 15 years. Uh, and the thing that's most different and distinct now is the cost of austerity. Right, yeah. And that's what we need to be talking a whole lot more about um, because it's impacting not just policing but every
0: facet of public life. So We're talking the fact that 1.6 billion has come off uh, central government local authorities between 20... 20- 10, 2011, and 2016,
2: that's a lot of money. So something like that quantity of money's come out of the MET budget alone. Yes. I don't know the exact figures, but we're talking telephone numbers. Yes. Uh, And so if you look at policing specifically, there was a report came out last autumn from the National Audit Office, and it looked at policing just in England and Wales, and it pointed out the fact that in the eight years from 2010 to 2018, we lost 44,000 police officers and staff. That's nationally? From policing in England and Wales. Well, so, so it well. doesn't include Scotland and Northern Ireland. Okay. 44,000 officers and staff. And, and you just cannot begin to pretend that it's possible to take that number of people out of a critical frontline public service and expect to see no change. Mm. Uh, and so when politicians stand up and try to suggest that there is no connection between falling police numbers and rising crime numbers. I mean, they're speaking in defiance of common sense. Right. Never mind the professional experience of tens of thousands of police officers. Sure. But the point is, coming back to the subject of knife crime, so you've got that huge impact on policing, but at the same time, there have been comparable, comparable reductions in funding in youth services youth offending services, in uh, mental health services, drug treatment services. Uh, and so what you've got is this perfect storm that's gathered in and concentrated on London's poorest communities. Uh, you know, I've said and I've written before, and it's more apparent almost with every day that goes by, that the cost of austerity is greatest for those least able to bear it.
0: Absolutely, uh, and that is, and that's a fascinating point actually. That it's all interconnected. So, what... and here's one
2: of the interesting things about policing at the moment. And I, am I'm, I'm not, and I never have been, a blind apologist for policing. I know, I know you haven't <laughs> been either. You know, there's, there's stuff policing, both individual officers and corporately, has got monumentally wrong down the years, and it's still capable of getting stuff wrong. But I think sometimes we lose sight of the flip side of that coin. That actually, even as we're sitting here now, mm. there are extraordinary men
0: and women out on the streets. And you need to tell us a bit about this. Because saving it's, life. It's, we don't get... In the same way that the media um, only paints one side of the story, especially when we talk about this particular issue, but also, I think, just in the public psyche conscious in the domain, we never get to see the human side of policing. Um, I've been fortunate to work Alongside both of you in different capacities, and many other police officers, and even in the church where I I passed as police officers there, so you get an opportunity to really see the human side, the incredible things, the things which I will hopefully never see, and the trauma that goes around all that type of stuff. Um, I think that's a, I think that's a very good point, you know, because you know, John's has
1: spoken about this perfect storm of austerity and all the inequalities and injustices that we're seeing these polarized communities, you know. And there's no sign of that gap reducing. It's getting worse. But when you have, as, as I said, so much less officers, high caseload, and they're responding to these horrendous instances on a more regular basis. And I mean, I don't know about you, but how often did you go stabbing as a constable?
2: Depending which part of London you were working yeah. in, but, but you know even even working in some of the busier parts of town, nothing like the frequency with right. which you, officers yeah. are attending there. Night
1: duty, you might get one or two, mm. but you're not going doing regular CPR, you know, yeah. or experiencing um, families distraught. I mean, you you'd have pockets of stabbings, but it's normally around where well, you know you had hotspots criminality, as your drug dealers your certain um, venues, night venues, shabins, you know, all these sort Mm -hmm. of places. That's what you used to have. Now, it's any place, any time, anywhere. And and invariably, it's in a public space. People are around, young people traumatized, and then the officers Mm. are regularly, if not seeing open heart, cardio, I mean, yeah, you know, that's, that's a very really good point. Cause I I mean to be quite honest, I've only seen it once, and once was enough. No. Much less seeing it
0: every month. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I think that's a very really good I mean, there's a a, a guy in, in my in my church who I think it was his I think it was his first week being like, you know, proper police, proper PC, and I think in his first week he saw like an open heart mm. like, stabbing and the trauma he went through. So one of the things I want to ask you about actually. Some of the people we've spoken about um, who's come on Power Talk, we're talking about teachers, for example. A few people have said, actually, teachers now need to perhaps be trained not just in how to do academia, but also contextual safeguarding and be be trauma-informed because the different type of young people who are now coming into that class of 30 are not all on the same page. I don't think they've ever been on the same page, but it's becoming more polarised. Do you think, actually, and I don't know the type of training which goes on at Hendon or with cadets, but do you think there needs to be a different way that we are equipping our police officers because of the level of trauma, which you've just kind of said, may well be, it may have increased in a way which wasn't quite the same when you were like Bobby's on the the. Oh, absolutely. Does there need to be a way, specifically, with how now people are trained and equipped? to become police officers? Absolutely, I, I mean... And is, it, is that happening? I don't, I mean... I, I, I think, think it. it is, generally, uh, and I'll give a couple of examples.
1: Uh, I've been working on a, a youth violence commission um, with uh, Vicky fox yeah, yeah. uh, who's chairing uh, that commission, and through that work, you know, especially since I internal a report, we, we touched on a bit of adverse childhood experiences and... Toxic stress, everything that we see in communities, but also how practitioners, police, safeguarding agencies have to be trauma informed. And as a result of that, I've been to a couple of seminars where police officers in senior leadership are starting to think, "Hold on, here, this is something." Uh, one was that film called Resilience. I don't know if you've seen that or heard about it. It's an American um, film, and it it's. Um, analysis of over 25,000 people in quite hardened, deprived areas in the US and how all the ACEs work, but also how trauma-informed practitioners are more attuned to observing how it presents itself from the target group of people you're trying to work with and also how you as an individual can trigger Now, as recently as last week, I was speaking at a youth violence um, summit in Redbridge, Havering, and Barkin and Dagenham, which are not hottest areas for knife crime, but they are seeing the need to be trauma informed. Now, trauma informed works are going on in schools, but I truly believe it needs to be done um, in officers, and through Voyage, we're doing similar sort of thing. And just break down, because
0: there's some people who will hear this jargon trauma informed. And we hear, you know, there's other things we hear, public health, and maybe not everybody understands. But just in a, in a very simple sentence, what is trauma-informed and what is the difference between not being trauma-informed?
1: Well, I think it's recognizing that trauma can be a physical trauma, it can be a psychological trauma. But it has an impact on how people think things through. A trauma, a person who's traumatized, whatever way, that it can present itself in so many different ways. and. From what I've seen of um, people I've worked with, I've done anti-gang work um, since retiring, their their assessment of risk is so much different. So someone walks through that door and they don't know that person. It could have that fight, flight, or freeze, or dissociate. Those are the four main components. Now, most of us will just think nothing of it whereas someone who's been traumatised, whether it's in the home, on the streets, whatever mm. schools, they will, they, will, they will potentially take, potentially
2: take on one of Let me tell you a story. i tell you a story to try and illustrate what I think people mean by this. So I, I first started to get really passionate about this stuff um, well over a decade ago. I was working in West London in Hammersmith. Uh, and a young guy called Kojo Yenger was murdered. He was 15, I think. And he was a good kid. He'd he'd never been in contact with the police, much less in trouble with the police. He came from a loving family. They were refugees from the Congo. Um, He was doing well at school. He he had dreams, he had aspirations. And in the middle of the afternoon, he was hunted down in the street by a pack of kids and stabbed to death. And it was just one of those moments in my life and in my career that in some ways changed everything. Because I've I've often said when I'm talking about this stuff, I don't just approach it as a police officer or a retired police officer. I I approach it as a Londoner and as a dad. Um, And it kind of, in its way, shook me to my foundations. And I remember being at the scene of the murder probably a week after it had happened, or the weekend after it had happened. And Kojo's mum came with members of her church and friends and supporters. And I remember standing at a respectful distance as they stood and they began to sing, sing hymns and they began to wail. And it was just, I mean, it was a privilege to be there, but. I'd never seen or heard or experienced anything like it in my life. And I sat there and it it was in the midst of a whole spate of killings in London, all young guys being shot and stabbed. And I just wasn't convinced that we were getting the response to it right. The calls were always, well, the police need to be doing more stop and search. We need to have tougher sentences for carrying knives and that's almost as far as it went. You know, it was portrayed as a police problem that was for the police to fix. And it just didn't work for me. I I knew that we needed to look deeper. And so we sat down with the local authority in West London and with all of the partners in probation and youth offending and everywhere else. We said, look, we've got this group of 13 kids who were there or thereabouts when Kojo was murdered. We said, right, let's look at these 13. Let's look at their whole life stories And let's see if we can find any common themes, any common threads that might help us to understand how they ended up there that day, Mm -hmm. and how they end up caught up in the murder of an innocent young man. And the answers were, on the one hand, not terribly surprising, on the other hand, utterly shattering. Um, Most of them came from broken homes, all by one of them, uh, and the one who, didn't was with a parent and a step parent, so there'd been some family breakdown in the past. All of them pretty much came from economically poor households and neighborhoods. Most of them had at some point been excluded from school, and the four boys who were eventually convicted of murder, four or five of them, all of them had been excluded from school. So there were these kind of recurring indicators, but the one that kind of rocked me back on my heels and remains probably one of the most powerful, shattering things I've ever discovered in my policing life was that every single one of these kids grew up in a home where domestic violence was a reality and experienced. And so what we tend to do, certainly what the media and the politicians tend to do, they look at the scene of Kojo's murder and they look at the acts of violence and that's all they see. And their response is, well, we need more legislation, we need more enforcement, we need tougher punishments. What they don't see is the stories of everyone who's arrived at that place. Now, I would never excuse the actions of a murderer, um, but understanding is not the same as excusing. Uh, And so, your question about trauma is that from the very start of their lives, these young boys, and it is mostly boys, have been exposed to levels and frequency of trauma that is beyond the comprehension of most of us.
0: And and I think that is a, it's an amazing point because I always say that youth violence or any type of violence is, is, is never the cause, it's a consequence of something else which we don't see. It's what, a symptom. And it's a symptom, exactly. What, and I totally agree with what you're both saying, what I'm beginning to see um, is that there's... Almost like a dominant youth culture now, which isn't just impacting those children which display or have experience adverse childhood experiences. It's impacting even those children who, whatever we define as good homes, whatever we define as you know the nuclear family. So some of the young people I'm now working with, or uh, I know. Sorry, sorry to cut you. That
1: is not a new phenomenon. Um,
0: no, no, it's um, not. It's um, not new. But no. the point I'm what, what I'm making is, yeah, the, uh, it's. It's scary now that I'm seeing people uh, stopped and search, and they're carrying knives, and when I talk to their families, and like, they're saying, I, I did not see this one coming, they're A-star students, and all this type of stuff. So mm. this issue, it's a kind of like, we've got to hold it in both hands, that yeah, the, the traumatised young people are at risk, but I'm now seeing even those who apparently are not traumatised in some- Do you know, one of, one of the things that's created You know, the accelerant, because, you know, John talked about
1: this perfect storm. The accelerant Mm. tool is social media. Yeah. Okay. So the days when, you know, you could really show your crime hotspots and say, right, you know, there might be some displacement. Because the point that John's already said, you're not going to arrest you about this problem, you're not going to stop and search you about this problem. This problem is going to be holistic. Similar to, um, through the, again, through the Youth Violence Commission, we went up to Scotland. Yeah. And remember, they were the murder capital of Europe. And they've reduced knife crime by 40% consistently. Few peaks and troughs, but consistently. Over the last 10 years, through Karen McCluskey and John Conaghan, and now Niven Rennie, who's the uh, current director of the Glasgow Violence Reduction Unit. They you won't, when you go up there, you don't get this glossy document saying, right, that's mm. it. First thing, get your head right. How you work together with communities. Mm. So, yep, yeah, you've to got your enforcement piece, but you've got to work with the community. Mm. You've got to w- highlight those problems, you know, highlight it with an understanding that the, the human stories behind this. How do they get to that position? And then, Addressing it as simple as being,
2: it's all around relationships. Mm. Mm. Relationships are so key to all of this. John, now, John Carnican, the founder of the VIU with, with Karen, he's got this wonderful phrase he uses. Yes. He says, whatever the question, the answer is relationships. Absolutely. And, and I
0: totally agree. And it's interesting you bring up the, uh, the VIU in Scotland. I sit on the uh, violence reduction unit in London, the reference group with Sadiq Khan. And I obviously, definitely, when you talk about the public health approach, looking at this as a disease, a holistic model, bringing everybody together, I think it's the only way that we can even begin to start looking at this, this issue. My slight concern, and what I will pick up from the community, is this, two things really. What really made that model in Scotland work was zero exclusions. Reducing exclusions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you know, last year in Scotland, only one child was permanently excluded in the whole of Scotland. You know, that played a massive part when we look at school to school exclusion to people referring mm. it to prison pipeline. Well the Timson so, review last two weeks yeah, ago yeah. has shown the very same thing. Exactly. So so that's one issue. So I'm thinking well, if this is gonna really work, how how if we're not looking at this, then that's a problem. And then the second issue which I have about the public health model being replicated in London in particular is the hyper diverse communities that we have and the historic issues that some communities, namely the black community, whatever that is, because I don't think we are binary or a monolith, so you know you've got to be careful <laughs> there. Um, but how that that historic distrust makes that's it a that's a very good very point. difficult to just Cop- not that we're trying to copy and paste or drag and drop. No, you can't do that. We you can't, can't do, do it. it. You right. can't do that. We have to acknowledge that these two yeah. things but, here. But are there are the,
2: the, the thing is not to try to replicate, but it's to it's to take the, the kind of the core principles. But how do you do that? And then yeah. apply them in the right context. So, so there are all sorts of obstacles to this working, but I'm I'm stubborn in my hope hmm. that I think it can be done. I agree. So the first thing is. London needs a 20 year knife crime plan. Okay. Doesn't have to be exactly 20, but the point is that it's got to be long term and it's far longer term than we are currently inclined to think. So we live in a, in a context both culturally and politically that is hugely short termist. Yes. You know, people want this fixed by Friday next week and it's not going to be. But we, get, we constantly cycle back into this short-term approach to dealing with the problem, and it is not going to work. Mm. So the first and most important principle that you take from Scotland is that it's got to be long-term. Now, we can do that in London, but it requires the political will, and it requires the vision and the leadership. That's the first thing. The second thing is that it's got to be health-based. So it's got to be based on a recognition that violence is at least as much a health problem as it is a crime problem. Like a disease, it can be caught and transmitted, but like a disease, it can be diagnosed and treated. Mm. And contained. So long-term, public health. The third thing is, and you've alluded to it a couple of times already, it has got to be a partnership undertaking. Um, And if we get this right, it will address at least in part the issue that you're raising about police-community relations and confidence, because you're absolutely right, and it's no good the police sticking their heads in the sand and pretending that it isn't an issue. But but our tendency is to say, because we're defining it as a crime problem Mm. rather than as a health problem, we're defining it as the police's to fix. Sure. Sure. The police should not be in charge of London's knife crime plan. Absolutely. Okay. They should be absolutely at the heart of it, mm. but not at the head. Yeah. Yes, and that's... So the, the, the first and most important duty and privilege that any police officer will ever have mm. is to save someone's life. And so the police are always going to be in the front line. They're always going to be first in line. And that's exactly as it should be. Mm.
0: But they shouldn't be in charge. But is there conflicting messages? So um, what we get from our Home Secretary at some point is there needs to be more stop and search. Then, recently... But that's years. entirely a symptom
2: of what I was describing earlier, but, which is the short-term yes. panic.
0: But how does that impact the police officers on the streets? So, well, yeah, and, and that, that's the that's, lead. That's, they, what they, you? They, you see, that, that's the thing. It's such... You know,
1: Sir Robert Peel, when he set up the Met in 1829, said something so profound, but so simple. The police are the public and the public are the police. So a key part of all of that, as I said, relationships, the, the legitimacy of policing is trust and confidence. So if you are going to be a police service, not an occupying force, you have to have
2: the trust and confidence of all the communities. And so we circle straight back round to the cost of austerity Mm. and what you were describing earlier about this catastrophic loss of neighborhood policing.
1: Mm.
2: So just at the point where we are most needing to build trust and confidence between me and you, I'm being taken away. Yeah. Because there aren't enough of me. Yes. Um, You know, there is, Overwhelmingly urgent need mm. for substantial reinvestment in policing in this country and in neighbourhood policing in particular. But just to take the point about it shouldn't be
1: police leading it, I totally agree with you because, and this is where a lot, I, I'm surprised that <clears throat> the senior officers, you know, chief constables, there's, there's a few across the country recognise, I, I mean, I was in Reading. Quite recently, see Stan Gilmore and what he's doing there, and he, you know, his chief constables allowed him to recognise. Yeah, police are important, but they can be um, leading from mm. the, the, the back, as it were. Was but that- and, and the reason why I say that is because the police is a success-driven organisation. So if they see that they're failing on something, they will keep going, keep going, belligerent. Fair enough. But it's the knife crime issue is so complex now, as I said before, enforcement is not the only way you're gonna deal with this, mm. right? It has to have the partnership approach. But no one's saying it. Yeah, no, no. There is this denial that, I, I, you know, I've seen so many um, senior leaders saying, oh, it's under control, it's but you're only dealing with the symptoms. You know, I remember, yeah. if there's anything Tony Blair said during his PM um, tenure, you know, tough on crime, but the causes of crime you've got to be even tougher on. And they're not really understanding that in that sustainable way as you talk about
0: and in a way that you can evidence yes. how things have moved along. But you've both, you've both said about it's the importance of the community relationship with the police. So I, what some people watching this may well view, and when I speak to the community, I don't think there's ever really been an acknowledgement that some of the way that particular communities have been policed has not been helpful. So yes, we've had them at first report, but even the review of that has suggested that we haven't necessarily moved that far in particular ways. The point is, you know, black people are still more likely to be stopped and searched by anybody else. Uh, The criminal justice system is still overpopulated by black people, even though we only make up 3% in London. So, you know, we, we can't be responsible for the majority of the crime. We've yet to have anyone come out and say, you know what, this is a fundamental problem to why there is a distrust between some parts of the community and the police. And for me personally, until we are able to, in the same way we're having a conversation, until we can have a conversation and an acknowledgement that there has been such an historic distrust, I don't think we can necessarily move forward in the way that we want to.
1: I would like to think that the Home Affairs Select Committee that is reviewing Uh, the McPherson inquiry and the recommendations will
0: set. But how does that trickle down to the average person on the street?
1: Well, I I would like to think they will set the tone to have that conversation and be honest with the commissioner and and all the chief constables across the country and really show evidence of where they are so that, I hear when the commissioner says, well, institutional racism, an unhelpful term. Well, it depends how you look at it. You know, I remember when, the the McPherson inquiry came out and the definition was given. And I remember uh, Lord Condon, who was the um, commissioner at the time, we said, listen, because we in the BPA were very active at the time, Mm. um, and we said, listen, see this as an aspiration. A lot of those recommendations and those performance indicators Mm. were not achievable on the five, 10, 20 years possibly, but because they saw it as short-termism. They never really dealt with it, and they saw it as, oh, we've been labelled, and as a result that means everyone, but it wasn't. If the agenda was written in a way that the media saw it as more as an aspiration, and not, you know, like certain red-top um, newspapers were just saying, yep, you know, it, again, it's just political correctness gone mad and all this sort of stuff. If they saw it as
2: aspirational. The Daily Mail hasn't got a red top. <laughs>
0: Thank you. (laughs) I do want to say that. No, no, say it. This is all right. I I own all the rights to this. He (laughs) can afford to be sued. I
2: can't. Here's the thing. I, you know, I'm I'm the white bloke at the table, and we're now talking about race. Mm.
0: And uh, but we need uh, the white bloke at the table to speak about race. So, but but
2: uh, I I suppose, but he's not an average white bloke. He's a white ally, and that's what I like. So it's
0: okay.
2: But as as I'm approaching my 50th birthday, and really only beginning to learn about some of this stuff for the first time. Yeah, I'm very conscious of the fact that I've got nothing to teach and everything to learn. Um, but so I've, I've lived in inner London since I was 15, and I have never been stopped and searched by the police. Never. I was stopped once driving my car, but I was driving like an idiot at the time. And the officer had a quiet word in my ear and I was on my way. Folk like me need to do a lot more listening than we do talking, particularly when it comes to this issue, particularly when it comes to the issue of police-community relations. But I'm trying to write a bit about it at the moment. I'm going to send you the chapter to read. And some of what I'm learning is... Is about the societal and the systemic <clears> nature of racism and of prejudice. Now it it reaches a, a flashpoint, a clash point with policing, because policing sits at the sharp end of the establishment. So policing it, it meets the community at the places of tension and conflict. But actually so much of what we see in policing is actually a reflection of what we see in society. So, uh, young black men are disproportionately represented in stop and search figures, but they're also disproportionately represented in unemployment figures. They're disproportionately represented in mental ill health data, in prison populations. School exclusions. School exclusions. and, and the list goes on and on and on. And white folk like me can't pretend that that isn't the case. Mm. Uh, and not only is it a present challenge, but it's a challenge with a huge amount of history. Oh, absolutely. And that history informs the present. And policing's got to begin with policing, um, but, but this goes far deeper and wider than just policing.
1: No, I, no I, I think the white folks who really need to get this are those ones in political leadership. You know, um, <clears throat> we know organisations, there's a human moral business case, the more reflective an organisation is, the more efficient it is. And we've seen that not just in public organisations, but private and voluntary sector organisations. We are still seeing your snowy peak type setups of organisations and you, you don't have the, an organisation reflecting the
2: community. Why th- do you think it is that, that, so if we look at the Met at the moment, or in fact law enforcement, the, the two most senior roles in policing in this country, Commissioner of the Met and Director General of the NCA, both occupied now by women, uh, who are absolutely there on personal and professional merit. I mean I know them both, so I'm a bit biased, but Kresta Dick and Lynn Owens are they're outstanding. Outstanding people. Why are we doing better at gender than we are at race? And that's <laughs> <laughs> and we may <laughs>
0: need a
1: part it's two for this. Been one. An issue. Wow. That, maybe okay. that's this is another program. You know, because you know some people see diversity as gender. They don't see it as race. Well, people don't or, want to break it up. Yeah, yeah. you know. Because it's like the Commission for Racial Equality. When it got uh, um, taken over by the Equalities and Human Rights Commission, one of the biggest things we saw was the race element seemed to be on the back burner. And, and we saw that Also, how it played out with the McPherson inquiry. Because all of a sudden, the Stephen Lawrence steering group, they used to monitor everything, chaired by the Home Secretary. As years went on, got less and less until they disbanded the steering group. I think it was Jackie Smith, uh, the Home Secretary at the time was the last chair. And then, you know, the chief constables then had to write their own homework, through ACPO as it was then. I know it's the National Police Chief Council, whatever, NPCC. anyway. So they write their own homework. A lot of it, they seem to focus on gender. Maybe it's the easiest thing to say, actually, we get it. Whereas they don't, and I'm not trying to generalize, but having been involved in trying to ensure that everyone sees it as a systemic issue, not a personal issue, it's not saying every white officer is racist, no, no, it, it, and, and it's because if you have processes and practices that have all the disproportionalities you've said mm. in, uh, you know, policing in the wider justice system, education, health, everything, you are going to see themes
0: yeah. that date back decades. But the fight for gender equality in this country, at least, has been longer than race equality, yeah. especially employment. So that's one thing we got to understand. We also got to look at not just the police, but in any. Uh, Role, which is senior management, it's rare that you see a person of colour in. So it's not just that's no peak, and you see yeah. that, you see that in. I've just written a book about this specifically around the church. And unfortunately, the one place, like a church, where everything should be inclusive and uh, God shows no partiality, as it says in the Bible, unfortunately, we still see these systems, this systematic issue, still play out in, in church. So why wouldn't you see this in the police? Why wouldn't you see it in banking? Why wouldn't you see it in finance? Why wouldn't you see it in the catering industry? We see it everywhere. So there's a systemic issue in the UK, which then And people everywhere. have to be honest about it. We have it. to be honest. We've got to that have conversation. the conversation. Absolutely. And if we don't, we're always just going to be going round. I think um, there's there's so much more I would like to talk to you guys about, and I always say this, and the guys filming this always take the mick out of me, because what I'm about to say, I always say, we need a part two, Mm -hmm. because we just start having this conversation. Um, I just want to close, I always like to close on hope. I'm a hopeful person. I heard the Archbishop once say, um, particularly from a faith perspective, we're not called to be optimistic, we're called to be hopeful. Yeah, um, and therefore I'm just asking the question from your. If you want to just close on anything, is there any closing comments where you see this going? Are you hopeful? I mean, don't let me put words in your mouth. You may well be thinking, you know what, what's going on? I'm not sure where we're going to go. But I'll, I'll give you just, some hope. Please do, oh, John. Is he's he's a a hope dealer? You know. yeah,
2: he's <laughs> a so, when we talk about knife crime, and when it's featured in the media, the faces that are shown are the faces of those we've lost. And the stories that are told are the stories of the families who've lost their loved ones. What never gets told is the stories of the hundreds and thousands of other young people whose lives have turned out completely differently. And uh, often though, having started in exactly the same situation with exactly the same challenges as those we see on the front page of the newspaper, (coughs) And so my hope comes from the stories of all of those who are triumphing in life. And, and my hope comes from the stories of churches and charities and statutory organisations who are working alongside these young people and seeing their life stories change for the better. Mm-hmm. And when I look back over my operational policing career, and I, you know, I'm, I'm now picturing in my mind a particular lad, Stephen, who remains a friend, who I've I've known for however long. When I think of his story specifically, but when I think of uh, the other stories that I'm alluding to, the one thing that is common to all of them is the power of relationships. Yes. Uh, and, and so where I've seen lives change, it's because the person concerned has found a place where they're safe and where they're loved yeah. and where they're believed in. a a place that is itself characterised by hope. And not just for a day or for a week or for a month, but for years and years and years and years. Um, We need to... uh, Patrick Regan is a good friend of mine who who you know. He used to use this wonderful phrase when he was still working at XLP. He talked about loving the hell out of people. Mm. You know, loving people back to life again. Yes. Um, and, and we will fix knife crime in this city and in this country when enough of us care enough yeah. for long enough for things to change. Absolutely. Well, <clears throat> one of the things that gives me
1: a real sense of hope is having people like John, uh, who, similar to myself, have still got that drive and desire to see change. Um, we might not be at the operational end like we used to make in life, this life-changing decisions on a regular basis, but we're still in the mix. And, you know, whatever we can do, we need to ensure we have some sort of hopeful influence. You know, that sphere of influence has to be, and, and I suppose that's one of the reasons why we're involved in social media, just to get that balance and the relationship piece which has been running through all of this when i leave this interview i'm going to um hackney where voyage is based and we're gonna we're having a um european youngsters coming to visit us and we've gone to seeing them early in the year so that cross cultural relationship we're building because mm. that international piece is. Something that's so important, and the CEO of Voyage, um, Paul Anderson, which I hope won't mind me saying, was one of my biggest problems when I was a probationary constable in 1984-85. He was my worst nightmare, but I didn't arrest him. In the end, it was just banter. You call me Judas, you know, and that's another issue. You know, some people say, why become a Officer, you know, you let down the black community and all that yeah, sort of yeah. stuff. And that's another yeah, discussion. That's another conversation. But I turned it around as banter. And 35 years later, we're working together. It, would, it would voyage. Mm. And, you know, I know when you invest time in people, you know, it, you, you sow those seeds, you reap the harvest. And I really believe those, those seeds of. Hope and expertise and influence, whether it's written form, doing videos like this, really will help people. And I would like to think that people will understand that we're all in this together. You know, Um, that's why, you know, I'm father three grandfather of three, and I'm not sort of chilling out on a beach somewhere in Africa, the Caribbean, or Asia, or wherever no, it may not be. Yet.
0: Hmm? Not yet, not yet. Not yet, not yet. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, because I'm still passionate about this, and I don't want my grandchildren, you know, mm. to go through the same fears that my children have, or the their generation. So, you know, it's, for me,
0: personal. And that is, um, I think it's a great place just to finish. Um, I do have huge respect for both of you. I think it is really important to keep having these conversations. I think it's important, um, not just on a race perspective, but on an intergenerational conversation as well. Um, I think both of you are. What blessed. he means is you're old. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Both well, of you, you are older than me, but you're <laughs> looking good. so all right. <laughs> um, But I think, even what you said about you guys are both prolific on social media, and it's good. I think it's good that you, you engage that way as well. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your time. Yeah, it a no uh, pleasure. God bless you. It's good to see you. And um, we'll just, yeah, let's just keep talking. And uh, yeah, it's been really great to see you. And it's great
1: you're doing these things, man. It really is
0: important. Thank you so much.